Hi, and welcome back to the Catalyst for Courage podcast. I know it has been a little while since we have released a new episode. I talk with my clients often about the importance of self-care, and this summer for me, a part of my self-care looked like taking a step back from Instagram, social media, and podcasting to just focus on my one-on-one clients and also spend time with my friends and family. I am so grateful for the ability to take a little break, but I am also so, so grateful to be back in this space with all of you. In the coming weeks, Catalyst for Courage is going to be getting a new and refreshed look, and I'm excited to share some updates with you about what's to come for this community. This week on the podcast, I talk with Rachel Lewis, a grief coach, a published author of the book Unexpecting, and the founder of Brave Mamas, an online support group for bereaved mamas. Rachel has such a gift with words and connecting with others on a genuine and personal level, and I love her candor and passion for sharing her story and the legacy of her babies in heaven in a way that is inspiring, encouraging, honest, and authentic. I have felt drawn to Rachel ever since I first read her book, and I'm so excited to have finally been able to connect with her here in this space. October is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month, so the timing actually could not have been more perfect to share this conversation with you. Rachel and I talk about the reality of what to expect when you are no longer expecting and what that shift in process looks like when you go from expecting a baby to suddenly unexpecting. Rachel shares practical tips to help listeners prepare for and navigate triggers after experiencing a loss, how to move forward with your life alongside your grief, and how loss, lament, love, and legacy can all intertwine in a really beautiful and authentic way throughout this lifelong healing process. I hope this episode sparks courage and ignites hope for you in the week ahead. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Catalyst for Courage podcast. Each week, we'll be sharing practical tips, inspiring stories, and a whole lot of courage and hope for those of us in the trenches of infertility and pregnancy loss. I'm your host, Lindsay Blair. I'm a certified bereavement doula, trauma specialist, and fertility coach with a passion to support others with stories like mine. Together, we can make the shift from barely surviving to truly thriving, even in the midst of infertility and loss. You are not alone, friend. Let's dive in and ignite hope together. Well, hi, Rachel. Welcome to the Catalyst for Courage podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I would love to give our listeners just an opportunity to get to know you a little bit. I shared briefly some of the things from your bio in our intro, but would love to hear from you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what do you spend your days doing? Well, I am a biological mom, a foster mom, and adoptive mom. So a big part of my day these days is sort of around my three living kids that I have at home and I'm just started homeschooling. So that's like a new adventure that was unexpected. And I have, as you probably already shared, I have a book. So, um, I've been doing some speaking and some podcast interviews like this. You know, we talked about briefly, the other thing I do, I've been doing lately for relaxing, um, and maybe it's therapy too, is watercolor paint. I just picked that up. And I guess a little bit about me. I live in Washington state. I live across the water from Seattle. So a ferry right away. And it is usually just as rainy and as cold as they always say Seattle is, but lately it's been really nice. So I've been enjoying the sunshine quite a bit because that's kind of a rarity in this like this season. Um, yeah, I think that's all I've been doing during the day. Um, besides the really, you know, the normal cleaning and cooking and errands and all of that, all of that fun stuff. So 
You say that's all like it's a small amount of things that you just listed that you do during your days. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess, you know, comparing this season to last season, whereas I was launching the book, like my my answer is very different now. So now it feels it feels like less because I don't have this this huge project that, you know, that I was actively working on and trying to launch out into the world, which, you know, that was a very big process. So it definitely does feel more low key these days than it has recently. I just want to say, first and foremost, I love your book. I said this before we hit record, but my only complaint is that you didn't write it eight years ago when (laughs) I tried. (laughs) I tried. (laughs) And it only came out last year because I just feel like Going through these pages and reading these words, I'm always I'm always looking for resources to share with women that I work with who are experiencing infertility or who have experienced loss. And so anytime a new book drops that crosses my eye, I usually buy it and I usually read it. But I feel like there's few of them that really just leave an impact in me and that I'm really drawn to. And yours is one of those. And I would love to just kind of dive into that. Your book is called Unexpecting Real Talk on Pregnancy Loss, which I feel like Mm -hmm. is something that is so needed. And so I would Mm -hmm. love if you could share a little bit with us about your journey to unexpecting and what your motherhood journey has entailed and just how these words came to be. As we talked about, you and I share a similar history of recurrent pregnancy loss and ectopic pregnancy as well. And like you said, Pregnancy and event loss awareness is is not just something that we're cognizant of for a month. It really is just when it happens to you, it's this shift that happens in your life where like your life at kind of felt predictable and kind of felt like you knew what was coming and, you know, you thought, okay, well, if I'm pregnant, then I'm having a baby. And then when, when loss happens to you, it's like this, this shift and it's like a foundational shift almost, um, because you realize that, that sometimes like the very thing that you want most is the thing that, that you can lose and you recognize the loss of control. We like to believe that if something is really important to us, that we have the ability to control our outcomes and our futures. And I feel like pregnancy loss is this huge loss of control. When I experienced my first loss, which was um, an ectopic pregnancy in which um, my fallopian tube tore and I was rushed off to emergency surgery, that surgery saved my life. But in this really weird paradox, it also took a life from me. And that was a very hard thing for me to wrestle with because, you know, that was in 2011 and there just wasn't nearly as much awareness. There wasn't nearly as many people talking about it. And I felt very, very alone. And I felt ashamed that I was that upset because I looked around me and it just sort of seemed like everybody else was doing fine or they accepted my loss very quickly. Like, oh, well, that's too bad. But then like, just, but it's okay. You know, um, whereas for me, I felt like I was missing an entire lifetime with somebody that I was, that I already loved and fell in love with and, and couldn't wait to meet. And so that kind of just sort of started me on this journey of, of trying to find where I belong and where my grief belonged. And one of the ways that I felt seen and heard and understood was by reading other people's stories. Mm. And especially in the very early days of my loss, because I just, 
I mean, I remember laying next to my husband in bed and feeling like there was literally a chasm between us because I just felt like we were processing so very differently and, and just wondering like, like, am I just completely alone in all of this? Is there something wrong with me that I'm feeling so deeply and hurting so much? And reading other people's stories is really what helped me feel seen and heard and validated and not so alone. And I remember thinking, you know, if I'm going through this, if I'm walking this road of loss and this foundational shift and um, even this, you know, doubt in my faith and, and this, these foundational beliefs I've had all my life, like if, if I'm wrestling with all of this and somebody else is too, mm-hmm. and if somebody else's story had the power to reach me and my really dark place and to make me feel less alone and to give me some, some hope, even if it's just the hope of, I'm not the only person that feels this. I wanted to be able to offer that to somebody else, because to me, that gave my baby's life some meaning and some purpose. I couldn't change the fact that she is not alive. I could not change the fact that she didn't make it, but I could at least hopefully infuse the experience with some, some meaning and some purpose. And that's what I needed for my healing. And so I started my blog, the Lewis note. I volunteered with an organization called mend um, mommies during neonatal death locally as a part of a support group. I started doing some guest posting uh, for still standing magazine and pregnancy after loss support. And sort of during this season, about five years. So between my first pregnancy loss and then the birth of my rainbow baby was about five years. And during that time, I experienced five back-to-back losses, all of them in the first First trimester. And then we did adopt a daughter during that process. We fostered a son for a year and a half, a baby boy, and returned him home to his birth family. So that was sort of a unique experience and unique grief. And uh, and then of course we had a rainbow, a rainbow baby as well. And prior to my loss, I did have one biological daughter as well. And her story is is a different story, but it was also a complicated birth story and complicated pregnancy story. And so it just sort of felt like none of my plans for how I would build my family were were quite going to what I expected and, and what I thought. Been a lot of relinquishment of control and learning to, I guess, take charge of what I could take charge of in order to promote my own healing. And for me, that was also, you know, working on my book. When we went through our second loss, that was the one where I found out I was going to miscarry before I did um, because they were tracking my blood work. So, so I found myself, you know, pregnant, but not pregnant, right? Mm. Like waiting to pass everything and not knowing what to expect. And so I went to a I went to Barnes and Noble uh, locally and I just searched for anything that could tell me like what can I expect from this process? Like what physically, how do I need to prepare um, emotionally? What will this look like? And I couldn't find anything. And so I wrote it. I'm so grateful you did. And I know that there are likely thousands of other women who have benefited and have mm-hmm. just felt seen and validated by the words that you've, that you've written. So mm-hmm. I am not grateful that you went through what you went through, but I am grateful that you have decided to share that strength and that resilience and the things that you've learned selflessly with others who are going through it too. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
I would love to hear from you. I shared my story a few episodes back. And I know for me personally, there was there was like different feelings and experiences of grief from for the first lost versus, you know, the third, the fourth, you know, down the line with recurrent loss. For you, what was what was that like after your first loss, experiencing loss again and again and mm-hmm. again? I feel like I I guess as my losses progressed, I feel like I couldn't differentiate anymore who or what I was grieving. It all just started to pile on top of each other. And I started to feel less like someone who couldn't have a baby and more like someone who didn't deserve to have a baby. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of a, you know, a really big distinction because that involves identity, right. And meaning and, and, um, and worth and, and my losses and, and, you know, the, the secondary infertility that was a component of that, it, it just felt like it took over my perspective, almost like it was a filter that I had on and that I couldn't see the world through any other lens. I could only see it as through, uh, through the lens of a person who couldn't have a baby and wanted one. <laughs> that was really difficult. And I share in my book that like, there's kind of a feeling that I had with, with each of my loss and it kind of progressed from, you know, this shock from the first loss to, to this unworthiness. It was just sort of this like slow progression of, of like hopelessness and, you know, sadness and, and then, and then just like this sort of worthless, like, like, who was I to even believe, you know, by my fifth pregnancy loss, it was like, who, who was I to even have had the hope that this pregnancy could have resulted in a life baby? Mm. Almost like that was a luxury that was too, too expensive that like I couldn't afford and I shouldn't have even thought that like that I had the right to hope Mm. if that makes sense. That makes total sense. I can absolutely relate to that myself too. For me, it felt a lot like the definition of insanity is doing Mm -hmm. the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And so it was almost at this point, you know, after like our third loss, fourth loss, fifth loss, sixth loss, seventh loss, feeling like, man, who, who am I to even have a thought that this could ever work? And I remember mm-hmm. it just felt like I was on eggshells every time I was pregnant after a loss. And then even the people who loved me, you know, my family and my friends seemed a little kind of on eggshells too. Yeah. And, you know, I think the point that you bring is, is really important. Like other people's responses to our pregnancies can even impact how we feel about them because, you know, if, if you think about the first time you announce you're pregnant and everybody just is like excited and like, there's these plans and there's this expectation, like, I'm going to have, you know, we're going to have a grandbaby or we're going to have, you know, a little niece or nephew. There's this assumption going into it that you're going to have a baby. And when you go through recurrent loss, then that excitement turns to hesitation and trepidation Mm -hmm. and this feeling of like our loved ones can start feeling like, well, how do I protect my own heart? And how do I help protect Rachel's heart? You know, in in my instance, like how could we be supportive, but at the same time be realistic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I almost felt like every time I announced I was pregnant, I 
and maybe it was just, maybe it wasn't actually like they weren't actually doing this, but it felt like they were just taking this big, deep sigh. Like, here we go again. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess, I guess we're going to have to support regional through another loss. And how many times can you expect friends to deliver a meal or send a card? Not everybody has this experience, but often there's a bigger show of support um, for the first one. It's just more shocking for everybody. For somebody who has recurrent loss, it can be harder because that support system is wearing down. Mm-hmm. Like they're also getting tired mm-hmm. and they don't realize that you need just as much, if not more support on your fourth and fifth loss as you do your first. Yeah. That's such a good point. And it's almost like the compassion fatigue, maybe that hundred percent our loved ones are feeling and their own self-preservation. You mentioned that just they're protecting their hearts. They're afraid to get their hopes up too. Mm-hmm. Yep. I remember I had a loved one um, when I was pregnant with my rainbow baby. This loved one was actually mad at me. And I understand at this point, this was my seventh pregnancy and I'd only had one live baby, right? So if you put it in that context, there was no guarantee that, that the seventh pregnancy was going to produce a daughter, which it did. And they're very grateful for, of course, now that I did get pregnant. But at the time it was just like, well, how long are you going to put yourself through this? Like how, how long are you going to put your family through this? And so, yeah, so that that's a really hard balance for someone who's going through recurrent loss and dealing with those difficult boundaries and different levels of support and all of these different, you know, all of these people that are trying to protect themselves in the process, just, it can be a lot to hold on top of the the infertility piece and the recurrent loss piece. One thing that you talked about in your book, and I hope that I got the quote right, but it's time opens as many fresh wounds as it heals. Mm. And that I feel like is such a foreign concept to those out there who maybe haven't experienced loss in this way. Because for most people, you think about the loss of a pregnancy or the loss of a baby. It's it's sad. It's disappointing, but you can always have another baby or you can still be a mom in this way. And it's almost this pressure to move on in a way that is unique, I think, to pregnancy mm-hmm. and infant loss. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like society gives us more permission to grieve someone who we have met face to face or who have, has been, you know, alive on this earth longer. And so I would love for you to just share maybe a little bit about that aspect, the concept of time opening as many fresh wounds as it heals, because I think that people just assume that it gets better with time as we move forward, but they're not considering Mm -hmm. maybe some of those secondary losses and how, how that impacts lost moms forever. Mm -hmm. There's so many different components to what, you know, what, what you just brought up. One of the things that comes to mind is differing milestones. So when we're anticipating having a baby, we anticipate a lifetime with someone we love, right? And with that come these expectations of we're going to, you know, baby's first word, baby's first time walking or all the way from, you know, first kindergarten drop off. Like there's these anticipatory uh, milestones that 
we just assume we're, we're going to have an experience one day. I mean, I know as a, a mom to living girls, I sometimes even project into the future of like, well, one day, you know, I'm going to be working with my daughters to plan their weddings. And one day they're going to go off to college. So like I have these milestones, even with my living daughters, some of the secondary losses are ones that we can sort of expect where everyone else's babies are our children are going off to kindergarten, for instance, and we know that our baby would have been born at the same time. And so we're home. We're not going to school drop off. We have no pictures of a cute little five-year-old with this huge backpack. There's that kind of loss where we're suddenly realizing that we are being left behind or it feels like we're being left behind. I lost that moment with my child. And then there's maybe unexpected ones where suddenly you maybe experience something and maybe it's a beautiful memory and you realize like, I wish I could have shared that with my baby. I wish I could have wished that they would have been present for that. It could look different for different people. But if you kind of relate pregnancy loss, like almost like to two different kinds of losses to try to help people understand what pregnancy loss is like for those who haven't experienced it. On the one hand, I kind of relate it to somebody who is engaged and their fiance dies. Like there was this anticipated future. They had planned, like, this is the day that we're going to get married. This is what our life is going to look like. And if someone's fiance dies, right, it's not only the loss of that relationship, but it's also the loss of that anticipated future. Mm -hmm. And almost none of those dreams that they had came to pass. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's one way to kind of think about it. And then another way is if somebody were to lose a parent before birth and they recognize, okay, had this person lived, had they lived, my entire future would look so different or my present would look so different. But I would recognize there was a hole in my heart for them. And I would recognize that had they played a, a part in my life and had all of these memories with them and that relationship that everything about my present would look so different. So I feel like those are two sort of different scenarios that we can kind of draw from to help people understand pregnancy loss is similar in the sense that we know that if our babies had lived, our futures and our present would look so very different. And there's this loss of things that we did expect things that like milestones and experiences and memories that we plan to make. And then there's this loss of things that we have no idea what it would have been like. And that's part of the loss because we don't know, you know, for many of us, we don't know what our baby's eyes would have looked like. We don't know the gender for sure, or their, you know, their sex. We don't know what their interests would have been. We don't know what their hobbies would have been. We don't know what they would have been talented in. So there's this also ambiguous loss of things that we don't know. And sometimes time is the only thing that can start to reveal like okay, like now that we're in this new season, this is one more thing that I'm grieving. This is one more thing I just realized I didn't know, or I never got to see, or I never got to experience. I love the way that you put that. It is, it is really the grief of the unknown. It is a huge part for me because my losses were all very early and most of them, I have no idea what sex they were. And so it's hard to even name them or have something to call them. I never got to hold mm -hmm. them in my arms. Just the grief of the what 
could have been and arguably what should have been Mm -hmm. in an ideal world. There would not be pregnancy loss. There would not be death in this way. A parent shouldn't lose a child. Mm -hmm. I think that that's just a really great illustration. So thank you for sharing that. I think too, like a lot of times for a lot of people, it's things like holidays can be Mm -hmm. really hard. Just big family gatherings and knowing that when you take the family photo that there are is someone or multiple someones that are not going to be pictured there. Mm -hmm. And it's just always, always that reminder. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear too. I love the title of your book. First of all, unexpecting. I think it's, it's brilliant, simple and brilliant (laughs) because that is truly what happens. Like you go from expecting a baby when you find out Mm -hmm. that you're pregnant to now all of a sudden you're unexpecting. Mm -hmm. And I would love for you to share just a little bit more either from your personal experience, what that is like, or just from your research and from your book, what that process is like from going from expecting to unexpecting, like what happens in your body, what happens in your mind, what happens in your relationships? Mm. Yeah, that is, it's, it's a really, it's a holistic process. It's a process that affects every part of us. And originally my subtitle was a real talk on pregnancy loss, fear, body, heart, mind, and soul. And the reason I had that is because I wanted to, to be clear, like this, this book is meant to address all pieces of you, right? All, all the parts that make, that make you, you. And my publisher said it was too long. (laughs) So I had to, I had to cut it down to real talk on pregnancy loss, but I did keep the structure of the book, heart, mind, body, soul, because it just, it affects us in so many ways. It's just layer upon layer. And like for, you know, for our emotions, I think an analogy that has been helpful for me to understand is that my emotions after loss were constantly changing and, and, and flexing. And, and often I would be feeling more than one thing at a time. And there's that complexity that sometimes gets lost when we talk about emotions. Uh, We like to delineate it incorrectly sometimes into the five stages of grief and say like, well, I'm in this stage, you know, as though we can just assign one emotion or one feeling to this really complicated and complex experience. But I like to just sort of relate it to watercolor, like that our emotions are like colors in a watercolor painting. And it's not always clear. There's not these, these lines that say like, well, you know, this right here is sadness and and this right here is anger. And I could always tell the two apart that often they're just kind of swirling together. And it's not always clear where one emotion ends and another begins and that we could be feeling lots of different things at the Mm -hmm. same time. Like our emotions and our feelings can look like a complicated and complex painting that has all of this variation of color and depth and hue and light. I don't think it's nearly as black and white and as delineated as we like to think it is. But I think that there's some freedom in that because for those of us who have, who've gone through loss or, or, you know, and and I think this goes even beyond just pregnancy loss, but just to deep grief across the board. If you're deeply grieving, this gives you permission to feel more than one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. 
to not have to be able to label your feelings. Labeling your feelings can be helpful. So there is something to be said for that process. Putting words to what you feel can be really helpful, but also to not have to constrain it or to define it and to say like, well, it can only be this one thing. I can only feel acceptance now. You don't have to put that boundary. You can allow yourself to feel whatever it is you need to feel. And there's this permission to say, okay, for instance, if I'm triggered because let's say this friend of mine shared with me that they are pregnant, I'm giving myself permission to feel one, thankful for them. I'm giving myself permission to feel scared that they'll encounter loss. I concurrently feel sad for me. And I also feel dread for seeing all of the reminders, you know, should they have a healthy pregnancy of what I should have had and I didn't have and jealousy, like, you know, Mm -hmm. like you can say, okay, I get to feel all of this. And, and that's a very freeing thing. And also it gives you permission to change your painting sometimes, right? You know, jealousy for me used to be a really, really big part of my experience through loss. And it's not so much anymore. I still experience it to some extent, but it's not nearly as much, right? So mm-hmm. our our overall painting can change. And that doesn't mean that what we experienced before was not valid or representative of our experience, but just there's permission mm-hmm. for there to be some fluidity. I think for our bodies, it's really important for people to recognize that the number of weeks that you were does not necessarily correlate with the intensity of your grief. And actually that scientists tried to go out and prove that the further along you were in pregnancy, that, that the more you were grieving, but they were actually unable to prove that. And that's because we bring so much to our, our reproductive story is so much more than just like the number of weeks. That's just, that's just one, that's just one component, whether there was trauma involved in the loss. There was the hopes and dreams that we had for that pregnancy. There's, were we excited about it? Were we not? And it doesn't even necessarily mean that if you weren't excited about your pregnancy, you would grieve less. Just that that could potentially have an effect on how you respond. Even when you go through an early loss, you can have just as complicated of an experience as someone who's gone through a 40 weeks of birth. Mm-hmm. And for the rest of the world, I feel like that's really important to understand because we cannot be discounting other people's experiences. We get to say, okay, you tell me what this experience has meant for you. And we listen and we validate and we accept. Mm-hmm. We don't challenge. We don't try to move them on further or faster. We just say, okay, this is what that experience meant for you. I hear that. That is so hard. I really like, I'm, I am sitting with you in that sadness with you mm-hmm. and with this grief. We do not get to discount that. And the other thing that I think is really important is the hormonal shift that happens is the exact same when you're four weeks pregnant as you are when you're 40 weeks pregnant. And that affects not only your body, the way that your body responds, but it also can affect your mind and your mental health. Mm -hmm. And it can put you at higher risk for postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety, Mm -hmm. even though you maybe have been, you know, in a first trimester pregnancy, you were still pregnant. Mm -hmm. You still had pregnancy hormones and there was all of a sudden a very strong shift and change in those pregnancy hormones. And that has a physiological effect on your brain 
and on your body. We do not need to be discounting anybody's losses for being early. Nobody is barely pregnant. You're pregnant until until you're not. And that has a very real effect. I love that you brought up trauma and how that's individualized and how there really isn't much of a difference, or if any, between someone's experience of grief and loss if they were four weeks pregnant versus 40 weeks pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I had one of my good friends who is a mental health therapist on the podcast several weeks ago, and we talked about trauma as it relates to infertility and loss. Her, the way she said it, if you haven't listened to the episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But she talked about trauma really can be as simply defined as too much too soon. So if you Mm -hmm. think about a loss, like that was too much too soon. You weren't prepared Mm -hmm. for that loss. You weren't prepared to lose that baby, whether it was four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, 20 weeks, 40 weeks, Mm -hmm. too much for too long. So I think about someone who's been in the throes of infertility for years or who, or who, like you and I, experienced recurrent pregnancy loss over and over again over a number of years. That was too much for too long. Mm-hmm. And then too little for too long. So too little support, mm-hmm. too, too little validation, too little opportunities to feel seen and held and supported. That can cause someone's experience to be more intense. And so I just think that mm-hmm. it's it's so important to acknowledge that. And I love also that you brought up the postpartum experience as a doula. I'm so passionate about normalizing that. Like miscarriage mm-hmm. is birth. Mm-hmm. It's birth in the first trimester mm-hmm. or the second trimester. And so there is a birth process that we go through with pregnancy loss, whether it's miscarriage, whether you have a DNC, whether you had an ectopic pregnancy like you and I have had, Mm -hmm. I think acknowledging that and just having grace for yourself if you're going through that and you feel those hormone shifts just to know that there's nothing wrong with you, that that is the way that our bodies respond after we deliver a baby. And sometimes the negative and unpleasant experiences can be more intensified when we don't have a baby to hold at the end of that journey Mm -hmm. after that birth. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, too, the risk of postpartum mood disorders can be higher for those of us who have experienced loss. There mm-hmm. is a real grief aspect to it. Of course, we lost a baby. We lost a pregnancy that was much wanted and desired. But also on top of the grief, there can also be a more clinical diagnosis going on, too, that could require a different type of support and should be validated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes you can't grieve as you need to grieve until you've had that mental health Mm -hmm. support that you need. Right. So maybe that looks like medication. Mm -hmm. Maybe that looks like trauma therapy. You know, there's lots of ways that it can look. It doesn't have to look like one specific thing, but sometimes parsing out, okay, what is grief and what is expected grief? And then what could potentially be some postpartum anxiety or depression or PTSD. Mm-hmm. Having a practitioner walk with you through that can be really, really helpful for your process. Yes, that is, I tell everyone this, my biggest regret about therapy is that I didn't seek it sooner. Mm-hmm. I, I wish that I had gone a lot sooner than I did. But mm-hmm. I also say it's never too late, you know, like if someone is listening and it's been several years or months since your loss and you feel like, man, I wish I would have started sooner. I'm too far gone. You're not too far gone. It's never too late to start the Mm -hmm. healing process and to ask for help and ask for support. And it's also never too early. Anytime that you're feeling like, man, I think I could, I could really benefit from 
just talking through this with someone or just going through an assessment to see if I meet any criteria for postpartum depression or anxiety or PTSD and see if there's any other resources out there to support me. I completely encourage anyone listening that if that's at all an inkling, go ahead and reach out to someone. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I think is a really helpful thing to talk about is navigating the triggers that come Mm -hmm. after loss, whether that loss has been really recent or many years ago, those triggers sometimes can come up unexpectedly. I think that there's the obvious things that could be triggers, like when it's, you know, an anniversary date that's coming up or a month, even October being pregnancy and infant loss awareness month can be really triggering because it's just in your face a lot with social media. You're seeing people share about it, which is helpful, but also can be hard. And then sometimes triggers can be as simple as things that loved ones say to us that are meant to encourage us or to try to help or to make us feel better. And they actually come across as really hurtful or make us feel alone or isolated or just misunderstood. And so I would love to know, Rachel, if you have any tips to prepare for triggers, because unfortunately they're going to happen. We all are going to experience them. There's no way to move through the rest of life without experiencing any triggers or reminders of the grief or the loss. Mm-hmm. I kind of like to think of triggers a little bit like a fire. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I was taught all the time, like stop, drop and roll when mm-hmm. it came to fires. And <laughs> it's kind of funny because I, like, there's so many things I was not prepared for, but for some reason, catching on fire was one. <laughs> the school felt very strongly that we would know exactly what to do if that happened. And so I like to think of triggers as like, okay, stop, drop and roll. There's triggers that you can sort of predict can be hard. When somebody invites you to a baby shower, you go to a baby shower. That could potentially be a very triggering thing. I know that's an example that I use in my book when I completely lost it during baby shower. So for the ones that you can predict, I recommend planning ahead. If you encounter a fire, like you're going to do whatever it is that you can to not catch on fire in the first place. Maybe you need to save for a boundary. Like for the first year, I'm not going to any baby showers. But that way, you know, if somebody invites you to a baby shower, you could just say, hey, part of my grief process is to say, this is a boundary I've set for myself that I need for my own self-preservation. Or you could even say, it is my heart that when you are at your baby shower, the focus is on you and celebration as it should be. And if I come, I know that my focus will be on my loss and I don't want anybody else to have to focus on that either my way of celebrating you really is by not attending, by allowing everybody who's there to joyfully engage and not have to worry about hurting my feelings. So maybe that's a boundary you set. So if you need to set that boundary of like, I'm not going to the baby shower. I'm not walking through the department store next to the baby clothes. I'm going to have all of my groceries delivered Mm -hmm. for the next year. So I don't have to go to the store and run into people that I don't want to talk to. Like Whatever boundary it is that you need to do to sort of escape or avoid the fire to begin with by all means do that. So if you find that something is triggering, give yourself an okay to stop what isn't working for you. So if you've thought like, oh, I really thought that I could do this. And then you get in the moment, you're like, actually, I I can't then, then say, okay, this is not working for me. So if you are able to think ahead and say, okay, I'm going to go to this baby shower. So before I'm even in fight or flight, how am I going to respond if I get to that point? What am I going to do? So maybe you're going to say, I'm going to tell my significant other, like, if I text you this word, I just need you to come pick me up. 
and I need you to make it seem like I'm not the one who asked for this. It can be so helpful just to give yourself permission to say, what is it I need? Mm-hmm. And not what is, what do other people expect from me? Or what does society say I need to do? Or what does my role as a woman in society say that I need to do? But just simply, what do I need? And how can I get back to what I need? How, what is my escape plan here to help me to get back to what I need? Drop, use some grounding techniques, get low to the ground. Maybe that means you take your shoes off and just focus on the feeling of, of the earth underneath your feet. I was working with my friend, Crystal Gurney, and she was sharing one of her grounding techniques that she uses is to take a couple deep breaths, look around the room, and then name five things that she can see mm-hmm. and four things that she can touch, three things that she can hear, two that she can smell, and one that she can taste. And another one that I've had my daughter, Sarah, to talk about is just pick a color and then look around the room and then label all of the different things that you can see of that color. And those are just easy ways to sort of trick your brain from reliving the trauma. Mm -hmm. Because when you are triggered in trauma, your brain is not able to understand like that you are now in a different circumstance. It's like you are instantly like your brain believes and your body is reacting as though you yourself are in this survival moment. And so using these grounding techniques re-engages your brain with like, Hey, look, I'm safe. Mm -hmm. Hey, look, my baby is not dying right now. Hey, look, this is a different scenario. This is a different time. I can calm my body down. Your breath is one of the few biological subsystems that's controlled by your sympathetic nervous system and your parasympathetic. So your sympathetic is the one that does the fight or flight and gets you prepared to survive, right? And your parasympathetic is your rest and digest. And so breathing can be a part of both systems. And so if you can sort of hijack your body into just some controlled breathing can help you realize like, oh, okay, actually I can put that system on hold. I can help calm it down. Um, I can re-engage this other part of, of my brain and other part of my body. So that's really helpful. But I kind of just think of that, like stop, drop and roll, just like try to get away, try to ground and then avoid what you need to. So that's sort of some of the things that I've included in the book, just to kind of help hopefully give some ideas of practical ways. But if you're looking for some really specific ways at, you know, working with someone like you who can help just brainstorm and and give some ideas maybe that that someone's not thought of before can be really helpful. Yeah, I love the stop, drop and roll analogy. I think that's so deeply ingrained, at least if you're a millennial, I feel like most people in our generation (laughs) probably learned that. Maybe if you're younger or older, maybe less so, I'm not sure, but that's just an easy one to remember. And it's, that's what you need when you're in that activated state, whenever something is triggering you, especially if it's something that you weren't prepared for. You were just going about your day thinking you were going to have an easy trip to go to the movies in the dark where no one would see you. And then you see someone and then they ask something insensitive. Like, it's just good to have something really quick that you can pull out of your brain Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. step into action. And Mm -hmm. I think too, like just having so much compassion for our brains, like they're really trying to protect us. And it's a beautiful thing. Sometimes we get frustrated with that process and feeling like, man, like why am I always triggered? But really like our bodies are trying to protect us from pain. And we've been through something really painful. Mm -hmm. 
One thing that I really loved about your book is the way that you broke it down into the four parts of loss, lament, love, and legacy. I think that all four of those are so important. And of course, we, I think most of us probably want to skip the loss and the lament part, at least. That's the really hard parts. But I think that they all four really beautifully encompass the grief journey that so many of us have experienced. And so I would love just to hear, I guess, just what some of that has looked like for you. And if you have any tips for listeners of how they can integrate those four parts into their journey. Yeah. Well, I'll start by defining them at least in the way that it makes sense to me. I think of loss as being the immediate effects of loss, the process. And so it's, it's the act of actually walking through the loss itself, right? Lament is then processing that loss. It's starting to unpack what, what does this mean for me? How, how do I, how do I function while at the same time, you know, not denying that this really big and awful thing has happened, but like, how can I bring those two things together and still, still be present, but at the same time, acknowledge what's happened and to work through it. And then love is that grieving within the context of community, finding who you love and who loves you and being able to support those around you and allow them to support you and to do that in a healthy way. And then legacy is, okay, now what, what comes next? Does that mean, am am I going to try again? Am I going to say, no, we're done. Like I, we are not going to try anymore. This was our last loss. This was our last experience with this. So what does life look like moving forward? Does it mean adopting? Does it mean parenting after loss? And then, you know, that, that concept of what, if any, if any, what kind of recovery is possible for me? And if, if I choose, how could I create a legacy for my baby? And I want to say that this is completely optional. Surviving a loss is good enough. So this is not like the, okay, you said you're an Enneagram three. <laughs> so I have a little bit of Enneagram three in me. So if you were going to like set a bar for me, I usually like to like go above and beyond. Right. So, so this is not a standard I'm setting of like, well, in order to be a good brief parent, you need to create a legacy for your baby. Like, no, no, no. If it's meaningful to you, if it is helpful for you in your process, this is an option. This is one way you can continue to move forward. And for some people, it can be really, really helpful. I know for me writing my book, as I share, like this was Olivia's legacy, really. Um, that was my first loss, our ectopic baby. So for me, that is part of her, part of her legacy. And that's as much for other people as it was for myself. And it was for her. So that's kind of how I describe this. And this whole process can take so long, right? So I'm still in the legacy process and my loss was in 2011, but I I didn't want to fast forward to the parts that feel better. I didn't want to fast forward to the parts that were the, the love, like how do you support other people and let other people support you or fast forward to the legacy of like, well, now that all that happened, here's how, you know, here's how you move forward anyway and make the best, you know, make, make lemonade from lemons. 
So that's not, that's not what that is intended to be. Or as some people say that everything happens for a reason, which oh yes, I'm yes, doing air no. quotes. I know you guys can't see me, but it's, that's one of the most <laughs> cringeworthy things. Everything happens for a reason. Like that's why you have Catalyst for Courage because you lost nine babies and it's like, no, it's not the reason that no. my babies died. And Mm-mm. Catalyst for Courage isn't their whole sole purpose in life, but it is mm-hmm. a legacy that I've chosen. Mm-hmm. It does honor their lives and it is helpful and healing for me. And I feel you would probably say the same about brave mamas and unexpecting. Yes, yes. Would you allow me to read just a little portion of my book, like a very small? Oh yeah, I would love that. Quick? And that's because we, I feel like we were just talking about this, and I feel like this would be just something I think is really important as we're talking legacy. <laughs> the subtitle is "All the Fine Print." You might wonder if I'm trying to wrap your grief with a beautiful bow, telling you to be grateful and focus on the positive and make lemonade and all that. I hope you know me well enough by now to know I'm not about that. Can you be grateful, focus on the positive and make lemonade? Sure. But do you have to? No. So let's talk about what creating a legacy is not. All the fine print. Surviving this loss is enough. No one should ask you to emerge better from this loss than you were before. Surviving an eruption is enough. Just taking that next step, breathing that next breath, that gets to be enough for as long as you need it to be. Your baby loves you no matter what. You do not owe it to your baby to find beauty or purpose in the wake of their death. If our babies can see us, I believe they see us with love only, nothing else. This is not why your baby died. Somebody will likely say to you, this is why your baby died. So you could insert, change the world, start that nonprofit, help someone else write that book. No, just no. Bad things are bad, even if good things come from them. No matter how good your baby's legacy is, this is not why your child died. No legacy will ever make up for the loss. You would give up every accomplishment, every award, every good deed for your baby's life. No matter how good their legacy is, it will never be as good as having your baby alive. There is no time limit. You can start creating a legacy on the day of your loss, or you can wait until you're 98 years old. You are never too early or too late. It's okay if you don't stay devastated, and it's okay if you do. Your grief process is going to look different than anyone else's, even if all other aspects of your loss appear to be the same. And that goes for your process of healing too. One legacy is not better than another. Your baby's legacy might be a renewed appreciation for the simple joys in life. Another's might be to start a nonprofit and travel the world feeding the hungry. Neither legacy is more important than the other. The important thing is that it's meaningful to you. Creating a legacy is just one way to answer what now. There is no one size fits all solution to moving forward with your loss. What helped me cope with the loss may not help you at all and vice versa. You get to do this in a way that is authentic to you. Perfectly said. Just since we (laughs) talked about legacy, I just feel like it's really important to bear all of that in mind that those are some really, really, really helpful truths to cling to. So I hope that answers your question. Oh yeah, that's, that's perfect, Rachel. Thank you so much. You have written a book that I think needs to be in the hands of everyone who's experienced a loss and you have an amazing online community, Brave Mamas. Tell us how people can find you and if you have anything coming up, ways to connect with you. 
Yes. So you can find me on my blog and website as well as social media. So my blog is the lewisnote.com and my book website is unexpectingbook.com. And there's actually a bonus chapter on there that I wanted to include. It was originally slated to be in the actual book, but I had to keep my book to 65,000 words. And so it didn't fit. So we chose to make it a bonus chapter. So you can get that directly online, like immediately. If you go to unexpectingbook.com and you just put in your email address, it will, it will immediately send you this free chapter. And then you can, on social media, I've got my Brave Mamas Facebook support group. We've got a couple thousand women in there. And that's for any mother who was grieving her child. And that could be in pregnancy. A lot of the women there are pregnancies, um, people who've lost babies through pregnancy. Some are women who are grieving children lost through adoption or foster care, children who are who are adults when they passed. So the concept of Brave Mamas is that we who are grieving our children have more in common than what separates us. And so even though our circumstances and our process might be different, we can still support one another and love one another and, and accept one another and validate one another. And then on social media, you can find me at Rachel Lewis, speaker and author, or on Instagram at rachel.thelewisnote. And then things that are coming up, I have a discussion community that I am co-leading with my friend, Crystal. She's the one that shared the one of the grounding techniques that I talked about earlier. She's a professional facilitator and she she is actually a former doula as well. She is my former doula and we're working together to go through the book. It's part support group, um, like very part targeted book club, part recovery work. And like, it's got a lot, we, we incorporate a lot of art and poetry. So it's really just this holistic sort of intensive deep dive into the book. This is not a, everyone is going to be sharing their whole stories. We're going to share parts of ourselves, like a curated part of ourselves, but be working through things together. And that was absolutely one of my favorite things that we did last year during pregnancy and infant loss awareness month. So I'm so excited. We're going to do that again. It starts on October 17th and people can start registering for that. Now registration is open and it's at www.unexpectingbook.com slash discussion dash community. Awesome. And then the very last thing that I have coming up is every year I do a remembrance, an online candlelight remembrance ceremony. And I normally do that on the 15th of the month, but this year I wanted to close out the month with a time of remembrance. I think ceremony can be a big part of healing and grieving and lament. And so rather than just pushing through the whole month and just like sort of burning out, I want to just take an intentional time away to remember our babies together. You can submit your baby's name and I will speak them aloud during just an online ceremony. So you can just check my page and event will be coming up about that here soon. That's awesome. And I will link all of the links that you listed in the show notes for this episode. Thank you, Rachel, so much just for sharing with us and for your words, both your words in your book and also the words that you shared today. I just am really excited for listeners to get to know you and connect with you and just hear from you. Well, thank you. I appreciate so much the opportunity and I really do hope that this is helpful and validating for others. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this is your first time listening and you're new to Catalyst for Courage, I would love to invite you to connect with us over on Instagram at Catalyst for Courage and to sign up for our newsletter at catalystforcourage.com. In both of these spaces, we share even more courage and hope as well as helpful information, tools, and resources to support you wherever you are on your journey. 
If you loved this episode, please let us know by leaving a review. And don't forget to click subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Until next time, friend.